All right, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. That is where we will be. Revelation chapter 6. I've said to a handful of folks who've asked me about preaching through Revelation, I said, well, the easy part is behind me. Chapters 1 to 5 is fairly easy, you know. There's not a whole lot of disagreements going on there. I'm sure you could could point to a few things where you might say, well, I kind of think it means this or that, and, and certainly I agree. But with chapter 6 and following, it gets quite a bit harder. I even put in my notes this morning. Chapters 1 to 5, easy, cheesy, lemon squeezy. But chapter 6 and following, not so much. But if you'll remember, we began this study in the book of Revelation with seven preliminary remarks, and a few of them were these. Number two was, expect to be disappointed with me. As we're jumping into a book like this, as you know, good men and good women who love the Scriptures have differences of opinion on exactly what it means, and there is so much to read and so much to understand, and, and I am bound to take positions related to the book of Revelation that might be different from your positions. And so expect to be disappointed with me. I also said let's be discerning with our dogmatism, right? There are some things, especially when we read through the book of Revelation and take it as a whole, there are some things that are absolutely clear. And those things that are absolutely clear, we want to hold tight and be dogmatic about those. Jesus Christ is coming back in power and in glory. And those who know him by his grace will spend eternity with him in the new heavens and new earth. Those who have turned away from his offers of mercy will spend eternity in the lake of fire. We, we must be dogmatic when the scripture is, but, but then when things are not so clear, we, let's not be so dogmatic, so Let's try to be discerning. A couple others, I said, don't count on a pre-trib rapture of the church. We might talk about that in just a moment. Another was prepare to suffer. And even back then, I said, we read chapters 6 through 19 as if they are for us, not for a people in the future. We'll talk about that in just a moment. I saw on Twitter this week, not always a great place, you know, but th th there's a guy on, on, I think it's a guy on Twitter, he, his name is Church Curmudgeon, right? So we, we need to take him with a bit tongue-in-cheek. But here was his tweet this past week. Pastors, your periodic reminder, that guy who really, really wants to teach the eschatology Sunday school class don't let him teach the eschatology Sunday school class, <laughs> right? Well, here I am. The guy who really, really wants to teach the book of Revelation, don't let him teach the book of Revelation. Well, here I am. You'll see it in chapter 6. We're about to get into the seals, right? There was the scroll we saw last week, and it had seven seals, and no one was found worthy who could break the seals and open the scroll. But lo and behold, no, 
the lion from the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, he's worthy. And he's about to undo the seals. And, and, and we're going to see what they are. And, and as we move on, then we get into the trumpets. And then we get into the bowls. And there are, in my estimation, at least four things that make this hard to understand. Number one is the relationship between the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. You can read good folks, and they got different opinions on it. Do the seven seals happen, and then the seven trumpets happen, and then the seven bowls happen, and then the second coming of Christ? Maybe. Or some think it's it's the seven seals cover this period of time, and then the seven trumpets cover that same period of time from a different angle, and then the seven bowls cover the same time from another angle. Could be. Others, Dale Ralph Davis, one of my favorite Old Testament commentators, I was surprised to see that he had written an article because he's, he's, he's an Old Testament scholar. He writes so much in the Old Testament, but he, in fact, had written his own study on the relationship between the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. And, and his was an interesting take that seals one to five, and, and then, and I'll just jump to his conclusion, seals one to five, and then trumpets one to six, and then bowls one to six, and then seals five and six, trumpet or six and seven, trumpet seven, bowl seven, all talking about the second coming of Christ. So there's, there's another way to take them. How do we relate the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls? That's one question that I don't know the answer to. About the nature of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. All you got to do is read them and go, what does that mean? What does that stand for? We realize this is symbolic, apocalyptic imagery. These are visions that John is seeing, and so we're pressed to say, what does that mean? And some of them are clearer than others, but some of them really make you scratch your head. So not only the relationship between them, but, but the nature of them. And then, of course, to me it seems the timing of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. I was trained to believe that the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are referring to judgments that are coming in the future during a seven-year tribulation period. May well be. I've begun to think that maybe, though, what John is describing in chapter 6, really all the way until about chapter 19, is history from the ascension of Jesus Christ all the way until his second coming. And so these sorts of things, or these things, are describing history from the time that John saw it and wrote it down until the coming of Christ to make all things new. So are the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls something that's going to take place in the future, or is it in fact things that are taking place throughout church history leading up to the coming of Christ? And then finally, another question is the church's relationship to them. In particular, 
those who would understand these to be referring to a future period of time, call it a seven-year tribulation period, will the church be raptured away before that happens? Or even if granted its seven-year tribulation period in the future, will the church indeed have to persevere through it until the coming of Jesus? So, huh, we're about to look at the seven seals, or six of them. I'm inclined these days to see these as what's going to characterize redemptive history from the time of the ascension of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, all the way until the second coming of Jesus. So I'm disinclined to see them as something that happens in the future. Though, good night, the more I read, I, I just I flip-flop, I'm, I'm, you know. And you say, I don't want a pastor who flip-flops. Well, too bad, you got one, right? And so, yeah, I can't, I, yeah, maybe these are happening in a future seven-year tribulation period. But if that is true, and it may well be true, I don't think, as I was trained to believe, that the church will be raptured away beforehand. I don't believe in a pre-trib rapture of the church. So, having said all of that, if indeed what we're about to read describes what is happening throughout the church period, or if it's looking toward a future day, a seven-year tribulation period, we either are having to endure through it now, or if this future period begins in our day, we will have to endure through it then. So again, don't count on a pre-trib rapture that will take us away. I just don't think we're meant to read these chapters and go, well, phew, I won't be around. I think they're meant for us. So there you go. Let's jump in and see what we can maybe wrap our heads around. So Jesus has taken this scroll we saw in chapter 5. And in chapter 6, verse 1, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a loud voice of thunder, Come. So remember, the throne of God and around the throne we saw these four living creatures. And now one of them with a loud voice of thunder, Come. I looked and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. This is the first of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Maybe you've heard that little phrase before, you wonder where it comes from. Well, here they are. Verse 2, the white horse. Verse 4, the red horse. Verse 5, the black horse. Verse 8, the ashen or the pale horse, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And here is the first, a white horse and a rider with a bow and a crown. 
and he went out conquering and to conquer. I read at least four commentaries this week from authors I trust, and all four have different takes on who this is or what this is. Tom Schreiner, whom I love at Southern Seminary, he thinks that this is a reference to Jesus Christ. In chapter 19, Jesus will come on a horse, and a white horse, and he will have a crown and the like. But he believes that this is a reference to Jesus Christ via his spirit, through his people, and the proclamation of the gospel going to the ends of the earth for the last 2,000 years. Jesus Christ on a white horse with a crown going out to conquer through the proclamation of the gospel. That's Shriner. My good buddy, Jim Hamilton, another prophet, Southern Seminary, he thinks these this is a reference to messianic pretenders throughout church history promising utopian visions if people will just follow him. Many have seen the relationship between the seal judgments and what Jesus had, had to say in Matthew chapter 24. And one of the things Jesus said about the end times is that there would be many who would go out saying, I am the Christ, and would lead many astray. And so Hamilton thinks that these are messianic pretenders that have come up throughout the age, promising that if we will follow them, they will lead us into something great. John Walvoord, famous professor and president at Dallas Theological Seminary thinks that this is a reference to the Antichrist who is to come. Nancy Guthrie, really enjoying her book on the book of Revelation, she believes, along with others, that, that this represents power-hungry, self-glorifying warmongers who come out conquering and to conquer. She says, think Pol Pot in Cambodia or the Kim Dynasty in North Korea. Stalin in the Soviet Union. What do we do? Flip a coin, you know? Roll the dice? I'm not real sure. I don't think it's Jesus in the proclamation of the gospel as Shriner does. It seems to me in the context of these seal judgments that this is not a positive thing. This is a negative thing. This is someone in particular, maybe a future antichrist, or it is, if you will, those who kind of prefigure his coming, these power-hungry, self-glorifying folks who rise to power, conquering others, and the like. Two, when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come! And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men should slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. There's general agreement on this one that it represents war. 
red indicating the blood that is shed, maybe not only through war, but through violence of every kind. Men would slay one another. We see violence and maiming of people and the killing of people with bare hands, with knives, with guns, with bombs, civil unrest within countries, war between countries, riots, and more. All we got to do, right, is watch the Houston news. And we know it's right in our backyard. Watch the national news and realize that it's everywhere, right? Tensions run high between people, between nations. Anger explodes. Revenge is sought. Turf is protected. People get in the way. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 6, that there would be wars and rumors of wars. There's a website you can go to. It's called the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, and they're seeking to keep tabs on violence all over the world. And if they got it right, just last week alone, there were over 2,200 politically violent events in the world just this past week. And so could this be describing that in the future there will be wars and rumors of wars, there will be great war and conflict and the like? Indeed, but surely it has been the story of human history, has it not, as well as the last 2,000 years. Maybe Jesus was saying to us, his people, be prepared. The time between my first and second coming is not going to be easy. The fact that I have lived and died and risen and you have been brought in relationship with me, your sins forgiven, made right with God and the promise of eternal life does not mean that life is going to be easy from now on. There will be violence. There will be war. Verse 5, when he broke the third seal, I heard the, living, the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not damage the oil and the wine. Of course, we've seen this in recent days, even here in America where supplies are low and demand is high and prices soar. Tara came in the, in, the, in the kitchen just the other day from the grocery store. I can't believe how much things are costing these days. But we live in the land of plenty, and such things are but a nuisance to us. But there are millions of people who don't live in the land of plenty and for whom such things are very, very hard. A denarius was a full day's wage, and it would cost a full day's wage to get a quart of wheat 
or three quarts of barley. The, the basic stuff of life had become so expensive. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 7, there will be famine. difference opinion on what does it mean and do not damage the oil and the wine some think it's referring to um, for the regular people if you will getting even the basics of life will be difficult but for the elites the oil and the wine hey don't damage that. That's for us. And so they would see not only is this famine being related here, but also inequality between the haves at the top and all the rest of the people. Others say, no, that's probably not what's going on, even along with wheat and barley, that even oil and wine were part of the basic staples that everyone would need so things are expensive, and they're saying, and don't damage the oil and the wine. We need that, too. I read just a little bit this last week, and we've heard it all, but global food, food prices have risen by almost one-third, fertilizer by more than half, oil prices almost two-thirds. The United Nations reports that the number of severely food-insecure people these are, the, these are the poor who aren't sure where they're going to get food every day. The number of severely food-insecure people has doubled in the past two years from 135 million pre-pandemic to 276 million today. More than half a million people are experiencing famine conditions in the world. Ethiopia, Somalia, Kenya, the number of people facing extreme hunger has more than doubled since last year, from roughly 10 million to more than 23 million today. So what is a nuisance for us these days can be very, very difficult on millions and millions of people. Could this be talking about a future day when things will get really bad for lots of people, could be. Or it could be that throughout this period of time between the first and second coming of Jesus, that one of the things that will characterize life is this sort of thing. Verse 7, When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse or a pale horse, green. Some think it referencing the color of a corpse. And he who sat on it had a name, Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and with pestilence and wild beasts of the earth. And so a reference to death that comes from many quarters. Death from war, from famine, from disease, from wild beasts. A reminder, maybe, that life is marked by sorrow, death, and grief. Verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, 
I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. So here are martyrs, those who because of their faithfulness to Jesus Christ have lost their life. What else might characterize this period of time? Apparently, Jesus said in Matthew 24, not apparently, Jesus said in in Matthew 24, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. I think the book of Revelation was written in the 90s AD. I think it was written by the apostle John, and so he's an old man, and he's the last of the apostles to die. And so over these decades, since he spent time with Jesus in, from 30 to 33 AD and then watched him die and then saw him alive and for the last 50 to 60 years now, John has known countless followers of Jesus and how many of them have he seen lose their lives because of their faithfulness to Jesus? He would have known Stephen in Acts chapter 7 who was stoned to death. He would have known James, the apostle in Acts chapter 12, who was killed. He would have known, obviously, Peter, crucified upside down. He would have known the others of the apostles who all were killed because of their faithfulness to Jesus. And he would have known how many other nameless followers of Jesus who, because of faithfulness, had lost their lives. This too will characterize this time between the first and second coming of Jesus. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? John sees them and they're crying out, how long, O Master, O Sovereign? You've got to love that because they have lost their lives because of faithfulness to Jesus, but they still see him as the Sovereign One. They know that it was a mistake and that he was in charge of it all. And they call him the Holy and True One. Holy, probably banking on the fact that he will not let sin go unpunished. And true, banking on the fact that he will be faithful to his promises to his people. And so they want to know how long. They know that God is going to make all things right, but they're just wondering how long they'll have to wait before he will. Before you judge and avenge our blood. This isn't vindictiveness. It's not a raging vengeance. It's a longing for justice. And there was given to each one of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would, also, would be completed also. The day is going to come when Jesus will make it all right. 
when according to his per perfect righteousness and justice, he will bring his judgment upon the enemies of God, the enemies of the gospel, the enemies of his people, and he will vindicate his people. In particular, these who have been killed because of the foolishness to follow Christ, they will be shown to have been the wisest of all. Number six. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of, the wrath has come, of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. I'm with those who believe that this is the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is interesting for those of us who were taught that there were this, there's the seals and then the trumpets and then the bulls and then the second coming of Jesus. It looks to me and others like these seals cover all the way up until the second coming of Jesus. The trumpets will end at the same place. The bowls will end at the same place. The second coming of Christ. There was a great earthquake. We'll see that earthquake again and again and again at the end of the trumpets, at the end of the bowls, in a reference to the coming of Christ. This imagery of the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casps its ripe figs when shaken by a great wind. This is the kind of imagery that is used in the Old Testament when talking about the coming day of the Lord. And often in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord was a day of judgment that would then look forward to this ultimate day of the Lord. And when it would be used of the day of the Lord in judgment upon the Babylonians or judgment upon the Egyptians or even judgment upon his people Israel, whenever God would, would intervene to bring his judgment upon those nations, this kind of language was used. And so as one of the commentators said, this language isn't literal, but is stock apocalyptic imagery for judgment. It seems to be indicating that the world as we know it, it's the end of the world as we know it, everything comes apart, if you will, at the second coming of Jesus. It's hard to read the book of Revelation and to make sense of it all because we have to remember it's apocalyptic language. 
it's symbolic language. It's, it's so visionary, right? I don't think any of us would say that if we got a look at Jesus right now, that he would look like a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. He would look like a man. Is this literally describing what's going to happen at the second coming of Jesus? That the Son will become... Maybe. But it seems to be the kind of language used throughout the Old Testament and being used now to refer when God steps in at this ultimate day of the Lord and Christ returns to judge his enemies, it's as if everything is going to be falling apart. And then the response to it in verse 15, the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? When Jesus Christ returns, we will all have to give an account. And there are many kings, great men, commanders, the rich, the strong, who probably thought to themselves, I don't need God, I don't need forgiveness, I'm good, I'm fine. And yet when Christ comes again, they will be begging the rocks and the mountains to fall on them because they know that now if I have to stand before God and give an account of my life, I am doomed. Friend, is that you? Then I'm good. Sacrifice upon the cross for my sins. It's good for you, but, but I'm cool seems to be what these would have said as well. But they now will seek to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. The great day of their wrath has come. J.I. Packer, what manner of thing is the wrath of God? It is not the capricious, arbitrary, bad-tempered, and conceited anger that pagans attribute to their gods. It is not the sinful, resentful, malicious, infantile anger that we find among humans. It is a function of that holiness which is expressed in the demands of God's moral law, be holy because I am holy, and of that righteousness which is expressed in God's acts of judgment and reward. God's wrath is the holy revulsions of God's being against that which is the contradiction of His holiness. It issues in a positive outgoing of the divine displeasure. And this is a righteous anger, the right reaction of moral perfection in the Creator 
toward moral perversity in the creature. in punishing sin being morally doubtful. The thing that would be morally doubtful would be for him not to show his wrath in this way. God is not just. That is, he does not act in a way that is right. He does not do what is proper to a judge unless he inflicts upon all sin and wrongdoing the penalty it deserves. The wrath of God is coming. There is a sense in which the wrath of God is being revealed even today. Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But there also is a day of wrath, he talks about in, sec in Romans chapter 2, that impenitent sinners with whom God has been so patient and tolerant, if they continue in their stubbornness, they are storing up for themselves wrath in the day of the righteous judgment of God. And here John describes that day. That there is a day coming when Jesus will return. And it's as if the whole world is going to be shaken. And we will have to stand before God. Who can stand? Well, we'll find in chapter 7 that indeed some can. And we'll see why that is. So maybe I'll close with this. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the author of Hebrews said. If you have not found forgiveness of your sins and salvation in Jesus Christ from his coming wrath, where are you going to find it? It cannot be found in yourself. You say, well, I'll just be better. In fact, I'm already better than everybody else I know. I'm good. The Bible knows nothing of us earning our salvation through our goodness. It says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you don't cling to Christ, who or what will you cling to? God has provided a way for sinners like you and me who deserve his wrath and who are destined for his wrath he has provided a way for us to be forgiven and escape that coming wrath. And it is the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a holy life that you and I couldn't live. And then he died upon a cross. And when he died upon the cross, he did something which the fancy word for it is he propitiated God's wrath. He satisfied God's wrath. God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus as that innocent lamb of God was slaughtered upon that cross. He took God's wrath for sinners. And then God raised him from the dead 
in vindication that he, that is my son, he is who he says that he is, he did what he came to do, he accomplished it, and God raised him from the dead, and he's alive. And through trusting in him, clinging to him, that's where you and I escape the wrath of God. He died in our place and for our sins. He died to the wrath of God for us. And if you and I will take hold of him, trust in him as Savior and Lord, we will, in the words of the Apostle Paul, be delivered from the wrath to come. So cling to Christ. And then maybe as followers of Jesus, a text like this would, would encourage us to temper our expectations. Of course, let us never expect heaven on earth yet. Christ has come, but we wait for him to come again when he will make all things right. Until then, War and strife, famine and hunger, disease and pestilence will characterize life on earth. Believers are not promised health and wealth in the present age, but suffering, persecution, and maybe even martyrdom. So we trust him and we persevere until he comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And I think of the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3, talking about Paul's writings, and he said some things are hard to understand. And I wonder, had Peter been alive to write about the book of Revelation, might he have said the same thing? Some of what John wrote is hard to understand. But Lord, by your grace, I'm going to do my best, and I pray that there will be much patience with me. Help us to see, though, to see your truth, to see the glory of God, to see the majesty of Christ, and to cling to him and persevere until you take us home or until you return again. Lord, some here today may be suffering persecution. Friend, family member, co-worker, giving them heck because of their faithfulness to Jesus. Pray that you would help them persevere. And some, Lord, I know are struggling with disease. or one of their loved ones is. Heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, and any and all of that can be so debilitating. It's part of this age. Would you help them? Lord, our brothers and sisters around the world who are hungry today, 
prices are sky high. They don't have the resources. Would you help them to trust you? Might you provide for them? Lord, there are wars and there are rumors of wars. And acts of violence, political riots and the like, some 2,000 of them going on right now. those who are in it, we pray for your grace and peace. Lord, any here that maybe came in thinking, I can stand up to the wrath of God in myself, might you open their eyes to the truth that no, they can't. In fact, they will be begging for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them rather than stand before God in their own resources. Might they turn even now to Christ your Son and His resources, the forgiveness He offers through His death and resurrection, the righteousness He offers as a gift through His life. Might they find in Jesus their salvation even today. And we will pray this to the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Redeemer, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You are sent to joyfully follow Jesus and help others do the same. Have a wonderful day.